Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to a very special pre-420 cannabis-focused episode 109. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Now, more than any other time, now is a time to stay vigilant. Breaking news, Governor Cuomo has just signed legislation officially legalizing the use of adult cannabis. The new law allows marijuana to be produced and sold in New York State. It also creates a program to help communities disproportionately impacted by cannabis enforcement in the past. Fox 5's Robert Moses has the details. Ayes 100, those 49. The bill is passed. Late last night, the state assembly voted to legalize recreational marijuana. Sales under the new law will likely start next year. Earlier, the Senate also approved the measure. Eyes 40, nays 23. The legislation allows people 21 years of age and older to possess three ounces of cannabis and 24 grams of concentrated cannabis. New Yorkers can grow plants at home with a maximum of 12 per household. They can store up to five pounds at home. I assure you that the full implementation of this law will be beneficial to all of our communities and quite frankly, to the great state of New York. That's New York State Assembly Majority Leader Crystal Peoples-Stokes. And she's right. This change in New York will be beneficial to all our communities and to the great state of New York and to these great United States. The recreational use of cannabis is now legal in 18 states, along with the District of Columbia, the Northern Mariana Islands, and Guam. New Mexico legalized the move the same week that New York did. And now another 15 states and the U.S. Virgin Islands have decriminalized cannabis use. And it's not just largely liberal places like California and New York. It's also now conservative places like Mississippi and South Dakota. Cannabis is now only illegal for any kind of use in only two states, Idaho and Nebraska. Sucks to be you. But now, more than 40% of Americans live in states that have embraced full legalization. And there are more on the way fast. That's in large part because now two-thirds of Americans back legal weed, including seven in ten independent Americans. Cannabis is an issue that now, finally, is far beyond partisan lines. Sure, there are still some holdouts and dinosaurs, but they're falling and fading fast. And we're seeing a cultural change in America happening at a rate we've rarely seen in our lifetime. Maybe only gay rights has moved faster in America in the last few years. But like the battle for LGBTQ rights and equality, this fight for drug policy change is far from over. The eventual outcome in America seems clear now. But timing, details, costs, opportunities, and much more still remain smoky. But change is in the air in America right now. Everyone can see it. And if you live in New York, New Mexico, and many other states, you can smell it. On your streets, in your neighborhoods, and soon in countless post-vaccination celebrations happening all spring and summer in what's shaping up to be a hell of a summer in America. And we deserve it. After last summer, the wildest, hardest, most violent, most deadly, most divisive, most stressful summer most of us have ever seen. Now, this summer, 
is shaping up to be one giant national block party. And coming up, we'll break it all down with the best possible person in America to talk to and a guy you definitely want at your block party, the godfather of drugs himself, Ethan Nadelman. Yes, Ethan Nadelman is back. He joined us way back in episode 12 with me in the Classic Car Club, and he's back again now on Zoom to bring his unparalleled insight and experience to all of us in this special pre-420 cannabis special episode of Independent Americans. And if you don't know, 420 or April 20th is like the unofficial marijuana holiday. But just before we get to Ethan and one of the best discussions you'll ever hear about cannabis and drugs, a reminder to stay vigilant because stakes is still high. Yeah, things are looking up. Brighter days are here. March Madness gave us one of the greatest basketball games I've ever seen as Gonzaga beat UCLA in overtime on a last-second half-court shot to win. Baseball is back. The weather is getting pretty damn awesome in many parts of the country. Biden's cabinet is now in place and picking up some steam. And we finally have an infrastructure plan for the first time in a generation. And over 4 million people a day are getting the vaccine in America. But stakes is still high, and we cannot get complacent. We can't get overconfident. We can't get cocky. Or we'll end up just like Gonzaga. Gonzaga came out of their biggest, most spectacular, most triumphant win in history, only to fly face first into their most crushing loss ever. Gonzaga got destroyed by Baylor in the final championship game, 86-70. to 70. And it wasn't even that close. America, we don't want to be Gonzaga. We're doing lots of the right things, and we've been doing it all year long. But not all of them. And now is not the time to let up. It's a time to make sure you get the shot. It's a time to encourage others to get the shot. It's still a time to wear a mask and be smart. It's still a time to stay vigilant. Because, yeah, the vaccine is here and summer is coming. But so are the COVID-19 variants. And other parts of the world are getting hammered right now. Places like Brazil. And just like we were warned by Italy a year ago, we're being warned by Brazil now. Rio de Janeiro bureau chief of the Washington Post, Terrence McCoy, this week, tweeted a thread that should snap you out of your smoky fog and make you pay attention. I saw this and wanted to share it because I don't know how many people saw it. Here's what Terrence McCoy wrote this week. I don't think people are quite getting how significantly the arrival of the P1 variant has changed the game in Brazil, signaling a much darker phase of the pandemic and what this means for the world. Nearly 67,000 people died in March, twice the number of any month during the pandemic. But it's not just that more people are dying. It's that patients are now arriving far sicker. The patient profile is also changing. Younger people are needing more intensive care and dying at higher rates. 
the mortality rate among patients aged 18 to 45 has positively soared, according to a nationwide survey by the Brazilian Association of Intensive Medicine. But the mortality rate has risen among all patients, too. Nearly 73% of patients on mechanical ventilators are now dying in Brazil, compared with 60% at the beginning of the pandemic. Half of the patients, half younger than 45, put on a mechanical ventilator now aren't making it. Yesterday, nearly 4,200 people were killed by the virus. This is an unheard of rate in Brazil, which for months was marooned at a plateau of around 1,000 deaths per day. Things have always been bad in Brazil, but never this bad. Things have rapidly changed this year. In one month, it went from 2,000 dead per day to nearly 3,000. And yesterday, more than 4,200. If this isn't a warning to the world, I don't know what is. Again, that's a thread from Terrence McCoy, Rio de Janeiro's bureau chief for the Washington Post. And he's right. If that's not a warning to the world, nothing is. We don't want to blow it. This might not be over. And now, at least after this podcast, you have been warned. So before you run out to a Texas Rangers baseball game with tens of thousands of other people, before you burn that mask you've been wearing for the last year and probably haven't washed, and before you ease up on that member of your family that still won't get the vaccine, remember Brazil and remember Gonzaga. We don't want to be Brazil. We don't want to be Gonzaga. We want to be New Zealand. We want to be Baylor. And we want to be vigilant because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And that's what will be required to defeat this virus and whatever comes next. It's what will be required to defeat extremism here at home. It's what will be required to keep Trump down in Mar-a-Lago and the hell out of the White House in four years. And it's what will be key to improving our spring and creating our epic summer of 2021. But even more so, it'll be required to ensure our brighter future for decades to come. And that vigilance is what made drug policy reform changes of the last decade possible. Vigilance is what kept that fire burning, that fire that pushed for public education, the fire that pushed for science and pushed for change, the fire that became contagious, and now inevitable, and soon transformative. And there is no leader that lit that flame and kept it burning more than our guest in this episode, the godfather of drugs himself, Ethan Nadelman. Let us burn one from end to end and pass it over to me, my friend. I heard this song for the first time in 1997 or 1998. It was on my very first trip ever to California. And it was, I think, the very first time I experienced cannabis. I was on a trip with my college rugby team across most of California. We went from the mountains to the farmlands, all across the state. We were one team in two vans, guided by two brothers who grew up in California that were the resident experts of marijuana, or at least as far as I was concerned in my pretty limited world at the time. These guys taught me about California. They taught me about cannabis. They taught me about Ben Harper. And they taught me about this song. 
And around that same time, Ethan Nadelman had started the Drug Policy Alliance and started his journey. Ethan Nadelman's been called America's real drug czar. He joined us way back in episode 12, and he's back again. He's been the mastermind behind the biggest changes to drug policy in U.S. history. He's a Harvard PhD and the son of a rabbi. Ethan founded the Trailblazing Drug Policy Alliance in 1994 and was a lead strategist behind 30 years of reform, including California's historic 2014 Prop 47 referendum that reduced drug possession for personal use to a misdemeanor. This pivotal political victory proved to be the first domino to fall in a string of historic national changes, and it unleashed a wave of legalization of marijuana in states all across America that we see now, with more to come soon. Ethan returns to independent Americans to chop it up for you and for me. Now, if you don't know, I've been a longtime advocate for drug reform. I've appeared in the media on the subject. I've written about it. I've testified before Congress about the impacts of cannabis for veterans. And I spearheaded the landmark VA Medicinal Cannabis Research Act of 2018. It was the first federal law in history that was passed focused on veterans' cannabis access. Now, we knew long before 2018 that the time for change on cannabis for veterans had come. Veterans had demanded that we be heard on the important and emerging health issue of utilizing cannabis to treat the injuries of war. We launched a national conversation underscoring the need for bipartisan, data-based, common-sense solutions that could bring relief to millions, save taxpayers billions, and create thousands of jobs for veterans and everyone else nationwide. These solutions included the approval of medical cannabis for every veteran in America who needs it, and for every American that needed it. We thought that if we could be trusted to drive a tank overseas or lose a leg in combat, that we could have access to medicine when we got home. We didn't think we were ahead of the times. We thought America was behind them. And Ethan Nadelman was making that case for more than 20 years earlier. He's a true godfather of the modern drug policy reform movement. America is deeply divided right now, but not about marijuana anymore. And Independent Americans is packing a bowl of light for you to contrast all the heat of the other political podcasts. And just like every episode, this one's pre-rolled with the Righteous Media Five Eyes. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. To keep you empowered and to keep your fire burning. The marijuana reform movement is on fire. In the election last year, beneath all the Biden and Trump drama, every single state-level cannabis ballot initiative passed from New Jersey to Mississippi to South Dakota. And now, New York State has legalized the green stuff. Federal legislation is gaining steam, the industry is exploding, and everyone wants in on the weed movement. Marijuana is no longer a partisan or a fringe issue. It's popular, it's mainstream, and it's key to the future of the American economy, especially post-pandemic. And it's got tremendous support from most Americans and 7 in 10 independents and moderates back legalization. So as 420 nears, independent Americans is sparking up the cannabis conversation again and continuing our focus on the state of affairs, the controversies, and the future of cannabis. 
We're also digging into the broader drug policy changes happening in America, from opioids to psychedelics to criminal justice reform, with the godfather of drugs, Professor Ethan Nadelman. Hope is the oxygen of democracy. It's the fire that must keep burning. And Ethan has been burning it for America for over three decades. Independent Americans are growing all across this country. And so is understanding and support for smart, thoughtful, economically sound drug reform policy. And it's another example of how independent Americans have been and will be key to real reform and lasting change on a critical, transformative issue. It's yet another reminder that now, more than ever, we must stay vigilant and keep that fire burning. Like Ben Harper said, if you don't like my fire, then don't come around, because I'm going to burn one down. Welcome to a pre-420 special cannabis episode. Welcome to Independent Americans on Drugs. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 109. If you don't like my fire, then don't come around, Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world, spring is here, change is in the air, and a certain smell is in the air, a bit more in New York and across the country. Uh, we have covered uh, cannabis, marijuana, drug reform throughout the history of this show, but this is maybe one of the most important and exciting times in that space yet. And I'm very happy to bring back a returning champion, a man who joined us way back in, in 2019 in, uh, in, in a special episode where we went deep into his history. But the godfather of drugs, the true godfather of drugs, my friend, the great and powerful Ethan Nadelman rejoins us here on Independent Americans. Welcome back, my friend. Hey, Paul, it's great to be back on. It's great to see your face. Uh, you know, let's do this. <laughs> so let's definitely do this. Lots to talk about. You were really, I think, you know, the godfather is right. You were the trailblazer. You're the innovator. You know, you helped create a lot of the policies, ideas, leaders that have made much of the change happen uh, possible over the last couple of years, especially that we've seen happen um, but I want to start with the pandemic is still unfolding. Uh, you and I were, were getting the tech ready for this show and you were in your closet. Now you're in your, your living room and, and we're, we're getting this going. But how are you? I've been asking this of all our guests. Ethan, how are you and, and where are you? You know, I, gotta, I mean, I'm, I'm at my home on the Upper West Side of New York, Paul. And, you know, I mean, oh, look, the pandemic has been devastating for so many people, but I've been in a fortunate, fortunate situation where I've been able to kind of float through it. You know, I was one of the few people getting on airplanes and going places because nobody else was getting on them. So they were safe and biking down the West Side and, you know, over the Brooklyn Bridge to go take walks with friends. So, you know, I've managed and I've enjoyed the little the little silver linings, like the little cafes society that's popped up with, you know, open air restaurants in New York City, the way European cities have. So, so it's been devastating for so many people. But, you know, there are those of us who have managed to scoot through it in a way that's been okay. 
Can you, cafe society. I love, I haven't heard anybody really call it that yet. I think that's really a good way of encapsulating it. And it's something you do see a lot in Europe and you definitely see in places like Amsterdam, right. And others mm -hmm. that have been maybe at the forefront of some of the, the drug reform movements that we've seen over the last couple of decades. But, um, what is it that's different for you about cafe society and what is it and why is it something you want to mention when you talk about the last year as a well, silver lining? You know, it's just, I mean, the, going through the pandemic, you know, you think about back to the beginning and, and it was, you know, walking the sidewalks of New York because we got, you know, we got hit worse than almost any place in the world in that, about a year ago. Um, but there's those little nice things like going to Central Park and this, the background noise is so quiet and appreciating nature like never before. And like animals are coming up and getting closer to humans and, and all this sort of stuff. So there was that part of thing. And then summertime came and New York had kind of got it under control for a while with the pandemic. And all of a sudden restaurants are allowed to, you know, take over parking areas and sidewalks and open up. And so you're walking down Columbus Avenue, Amsterdam Avenue, going down the village, going to parts of Brooklyn, what have you, and all people are sitting outside at daytime, nighttime. Uh, now, once it got to be wintertime and we're sitting there huddling with four layers of clothing and, you know, hand warmers and freezing and whatever, that was a little different. But now it's opening up again. And I like the fact that New York's probably going to keep this in place. And so it is going to transform the kind of character of, of street life on New York. It's going to warm it up. It's going to warm it up. And, you know, I, I like that part. I like that. So the whole country's warming up. Um, you know, cannabis policy is more than warming up. It's it's on fire. It's white hot right now. And a lot of this is stuff that that you really laid the groundwork for. Um, th there's a lot to unpack about what's happening, but maybe I want to start with with the election if we can, because yeah. that was really important. Obviously, everybody was focused on Biden and Trump. But unless I'm mistaken, I think every statewide marijuana ballot initiative passed. And I, I looked right. at and, and I looked at the list. It's not just blue states. I mean, it, this is independent Americans now. I've long since made the case that this is an issue that really unites independence and brings people together of all political backgrounds. But if you look at the list of states, I think it was New Jersey, Arizona, Montana, Mississippi, and South Dakota, right? Yeah. And they all went through. So, can you talk about maybe the election day of of last year? And, and the ballot initiatives and what you saw and what you think people should know about that moment. Yeah, I mean, it is absolutely incredible because while you still continue to have a partisan split, typically in the legislatures of most states, like when New York legalized in, uh, in late March, not a single Republican voted in favor. And I think something similar happened in Virginia. But if you look at the public opinion polls, you know, already four or five years ago, you were seeing a majority of Republican youth, Republicans in, the, in their 20s. Now, I think you got a majority of Republicans nationwide and even sometimes in conservative and southern states. So there really is a bipartisan nature on the marijuana issue and to some extent, some elements of the broader drug policy reform issue. So you look, Arizona, you know, purple state. It almost passed. It was one of the few states that lost a couple of years before, back in 2016, I think it was. Um, but now it went through with, you know, flying colors. Montana has a bit of that frontier spirit. You know, that issue's been out there. But that came. But South Dakota, I mean, South Dakota, which legalized both. And normally states do medical first and then they go for broader legalization. South Dakota did both at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that was remarkable that South Dakota did it, notwithstanding the strong opposition of the Republican governor and a lot of the Republican establishment and, of course, the law enforcement establishment. Mississippi was interesting 
That was just medical marijuana. But there was a guy there, a Republican state legislator, and I've known him for many years. And the way I got to know him was he started showing up at the biennial conferences of my organization, Drug Policy Alliance, not because we invited him to speak. He was just coming to listen and learn and meet people. And how often do you get an elected official going to a gathering, not to speak and leave, you know, it's kind of a fly-by speaking, speaking engagement, we call it, but actually to listen and learn. And he dug in not just on marijuana, but on the broader drug policy issue. And he was reading books and call, asking me, who should I talk to? I mean, really remarkable fellow. And he had made a chunk of money in tech when he was in his 20s, not a huge amount. He put his own money behind this. He put his own name behind it. And he really drove this thing in Mississippi, which is, you know, has to be just about the most conservative state in the country. So, you know, you had different situations. New Jersey, by and large, doesn't have a ballot initiative process. And trying to get this through the legislature where the Democratic governor was in, in favor and the Democratic legislator in favor, they just couldn't get their shit together. But they have a, a process where the legislature can put it on the ballot. And so that was an unusual process of, you know, of a blue state finally doing it um, in an odd kind of way. But overall, really good, really good. So uh, I, I've said before, and I was taught that advocacy is not a big bang, it's a drumbeat. And you and I met through the social entrepreneurship world where we were both in these fellowships and programs trying to empower our work. And there was a lot of crossover over the years, but I watched very closely, you know, it, it's an issue that I care about. It's an issue that IVA tried to lead on uh, long before other veterans groups, uh, you know, were, were behind this. And I think that was a generational split, especially that we saw that was, that was in play. But was there a tipping point Ethan, that you can look to now with perspective, you know, I look at a parallel of, of gay rights, right? Where marriage and, and uh, DADT reform, things just started falling quickly. Dominoes seem to happen culturally. Yeah. And the public opinion shifted. Was there a moment or, or a series of moments that you think were critical in creating what now seems like an almost inevitable tidal wave of change? Yeah, Paul, I got a pretty clear narrative on this because, you know, I realized, um, I mean, you're right. It is not, just, it's not generally big bangs. It's that incremental work, et cetera, of, of moving public opinion, of moving through through legislatures. But the ballot initiative process does offer a big bang possibility. And this year is the 25th anniversary of us winning the medical marijuana initiative in California back in 1996, Prop 215. And that initiative was the first time that this nascent drug policy reform movement showed that we could play ball in the major leagues of American politics. I mean, we won that one and it became electric news, front page headlines, cover of Newsweek. It changed things. It freaked out the federal government and all of that. And it opened up the door to make all of this real. So 96 was huge. I think the next moment, in a way, you rarely get a big bang out of a defeat. But in 2010, a local medical marijuana entrepreneur, Richard Lee, decided to put a legalization initiative on the ballot in California. And there'd been a bunch of those in other states before, Alaska, Colorado, Nevada, which hadn't really gone anywhere. But Richard did this and, and it lost. But when he started at the beginning of 2010, most people said, this is ridiculous. This stuff can never win. By the time it lost by a few points, people were going, how come it didn't win? What happened? You know, and so it actually had an international and even in Latin America, it shook things up. Two years later, the next big bang, Colorado and Washington become the first states in the U.S. to legalize marijuana. And that is significant, not just in the United States, but internationally. Uruguay becomes the first country to do it the following year. And then I say the next big bang was really 2016. 
2016 was when we legalized in California and uh, three other states. Uh, once we won California, at that point, it was like game over. At that point, we knew we had a substantial majority of public opinion. We had just won the biggest state, you know, that we had done it all through the ballot initiative process. But as happened with medical marijuana, once you win the first states through the ballot initiative process where the public's willing to move faster than the politicians, then the legislature start to follow. And it was really after that point that I basically, you know, a month later, two months later, I said, OK, I'm done. I'm out of here. Pass <laughs> on the baton to the next generation who can really fight for the details, can fight to make these laws better and stronger, can fight for racial and equi economic equity provisions and all that sort of stuff. So um, the latest big bang is New York, right? New York was a holdout where Massachusetts and New Jersey had legalized. So people were literally, you know, driving to a different state and, and you could see the economic factors start to play out where people were spending money across state lines, right? And, yes. and New York, we knew was coming. We thought maybe last summer. Now, maybe Cuomo's challenges put it put a little bit more of, of, a, of a fire under his ass to, to get it done. But now, you know, unpacking this, I'm a guy, I've talked about this openly, I'm a guy who got arrested for, for, for weed possession, right? Uh -huh. Now, uh, my record is expunged and everybody can do what I got arrested for, right? Which was smoking a joint in, in the village with a couple of my friends, right? Um, right? Now, you can pretty much smoke everywhere you can smoke a cigarette, right? You can't drive and smoke. You can't do it in a public park or other places. You're not allowed to smoke tobacco. But can you talk about New York and, and also this economic moment where it seems like if you don't legalize, you're going to get smoked economically. And, you know, Mississippi being ahead of New York economically is kind of mind blowing. Right. Yeah, so yeah. What, what, what do you see in New York? That is, well, that remember, is, was, is Mississippi was just medical, but your point's well right. taken, Paul, because, I mean, and, you know, Massachusetts was the, was the bordering state. Plus, of course, Canada legalized a couple of right. years ago. New York's got a big border with Canada. So we had those bordering states. New Jersey just did it a few months ago. So they're not up and going, but people could see the writing on the wall of people getting on the train and going to Hoboken or driving, you know, through the Lincoln right. or Holland Tunnel and getting it. So that was inevitable. Pennsylvania is talking about it. The governor is there. And I don't know, have you had the lieutenant governor Fetterman on your show? He, no, he's he, at the top of my top of my wish list. And, and he could be a, a stunt double for either one of us. Right. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know, the distinguished world of, of strikingly handsome, bald headed white guys, you know, fighting for social justice and freedom. Right. You know, right. but anyway, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has been talking about, Connecticut's been talking about, and then Virginia out of nowhere becomes the first day in the South just a couple of months ago to legalize, uh, legalize marijuana. Now, they were going to take three years to implement it, but it's just getting embarrassing. And in New York, when you have, what, 60 more percent of the public in favor of this, where there's been a dynamic campaign going. So a lot of things happen, Paul, to make New York. And by the way, in, in some respects, New York is such a leap forward in terms of the substance of the initiative compared to the other states, that it does represent a big bang in its own way. And we can get into that. Why did this happen now? Well, there's a bunch of reasons. I mean, one was you had a very sustained effort to, to, to move in this direction among the advocacy world. And I'm very proud of my or former organization, Drug Policy Alliance, you know, my former colleagues, the current director, Cassandra Federique, her deputy, her, her, the person who heads the New York operation, Melissa Moore, they spearheaded this stuff. And they made sure this law was going to be special, but they did it over years. 
Secondly, it wasn't just about marijuana, right? Drug Policy Alliance has been about ending the broader drug war. We spent many years, over a decade, fighting successfully to repeal the draconian Rockefeller drug laws. We, we focused on the issue of the ways in which the drug war intersected with immigrant rights. We focused on making sure people who injected drugs had access to clean needles. We focused on the overdose issue. So we had a huge amount of credibility when it came to moving this issue forward as a social justice issue. We weren't just about making money from weed, which is what's sometimes the story in other states. The next thing was, you know, really committed legislators. I mean, there was an Upper East Side legislator, Liz Kruger, who didn't need to do this for her district, but she took it on as a racial justice issue. There was the maturing of this issue as a racial justice issue. When we first got going, like in Colorado and Washington, and then two years later, Oregon, Alaska, I mean, these states have very small populations, overwhelmingly white populations, mm. you know, very small black populations. We put some racial justice provisions in there, but it wasn't a major issue. It's still not clear that racial justice issues are gonna be that important when you take it as a ballot initiative to the public. But when you're building up coalitions in state legislatures and when you have strong African-American and Latino, you know, political legislative coalitions, that starts to make a real difference. Then, pivotally, Cuomo, you know, who is saying for the last few years, yeah, I'm in favor. But I mean, he had a long history of screwing up the medical marijuana law. And on this one, he kept fighting. He didn't put any capital behind it. He didn't see what was in it for him. You know, he kept fighting over issues and blocking the efforts, you know. And this year, because he's so politically weakened as a, because of the sexual harassment stuff and the other scandals he's got himself into, he needed a win. And yeah. he didn't want to be fighting over the details this time. So he was ready to go along. And of course, the other variable was that for a long time, the Republicans or the Republicans with a few independent Democrats controlled the Senate. And now the Democrats are very much in charge. So you had strong Democratic leadership, a weakened governor who would have been a problem otherwise, a strong advocacy coalition, strong legislative support, and also the benefit of gaining from what had gone right or wrong in other states. Mm. Uh, uh, you, you unpacked so much of that that I think is 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 absolutely critical. Um, and for a long time, I was critical of of both parties saying, "Hey, this is a political jump ball. This is a turnout mm -hmm. issue, right?" If if a party came out and said, if a presidential candidate had run on one issue and said, "I am going to legalize marijuana," that candidate would. And I don't know, maybe there was one we didn't know about, right? But if Andrew Yang or someone else had had really fully embraced that. I think you would have seen a lot of energy and turnout, especially among people who were one issue voters who would have voted on that issue. But now we're at a point, Ethan, where uh, maybe America is starting to lead or, 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 or in, 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 the, in the process of getting ready to lead. I think back to the days of uh, marijuana tourism. We all knew people who would go to Amsterdam for a week and smoke or go to Jamaica and smoke. Right now, it's probably easier to get weed in New York than in Jamaica. All right. Oh, Is there a oh, shift happening? Some of those places, if they want high end weed in Mexico, you want high end weed, you're buying marijuana imported from the U.S. Right. Right. So so is there is there a shift happening, uh, especially economically? And I see a parallel here because the vaccine is a parallel. Right. We were way behind. Now we're leading on the vaccine and we have a chance to lead the vaccination of the world. We were behind for a long time on cannabis and drug reform. Is there an opportunity now, especially because, frankly, we're so good at branding. You've got people like Seth Rogen and others that are jumping on this. Are we in a position to be the global leader on, on can both cannabis industry and even cannabis tourism? 
Well, I'll tell you, I mean, Paul, let's just go back to first that's where you started with the political level. You know, I remember having an hour conversation um, over the phone with Bernie Sanders um, mm. back in late 2015, early 2016, because he was kind of one of these old line socialist Democrats who never liked weed and was kind of culturally conservative on that issue. And all of his you know, staff and others really wanted to, to get him moving. And then Ben Cohen, you know, the Ben and Jerry's ice cream guy put us together and, and, and Bernie really did move, you know, thereafter. I think maybe I played some role in that. And he began to show some leadership on that back then. And it was, it was an edge for him vis-a-vis Hillary, although obviously, you know, not, not, not quite, you know, not quite enough. Now, when you got to, um, uh, 2020, almost all of the candidates in the Democratic primary, in fact, were in favor of legalizing marijuana. Kamala Harris, who had been kind of chicken shit on this issue for many years while she was a DA in San Francisco and the attorney general of California, once she joined the Senate, she became a bold leader on this stuff. And Yang and a whole range of, in fact, the worst one of all of them was Biden, unfortunately. Right, right, right. right? And right. some of us were, you know, for those of us who, who care profoundly and have committed our lives to ending the war on drugs, but we also see Donald Trump as an existential threat to freedom in America and the world, we were a little worried. I mean, it was like, oh my God, what happens if Donald Trump surprises everybody by coming out for legalizing marijuana in the campaign? Because, you know, yeah, it might have alienated some of his base, but he had already done so much for them on other levels, on the courts and on a range of other issues, that he probably wasn't going to lose much of anything there. And meanwhile, with Biden being stuck in the mud on marijuana legalization and saying, oh, yeah, I support decram, but you know, he's got this old world anti-drug thing, a little like Bernie Sanders did until a few years ago. You know, we thought Trump could have had an edge by doing that. But he never made that move. He never made that move. Whether mm-hmm. that might have actually influenced the election or whether Trump might have swung a few those few tens of thousands of votes in key swing states, uh, you know, we'll never know about that. Right. Mm. So the second part of your question about U.S. showing world leadership, you know, the truth is we have been a world leader right from the beginning. I mean, what, where we what we did on medical marijuana back beginning in 96 and then it's spreading to all the other states. That was even in the midst of being the global leader on the war on drugs, here was this massive exception on medical marijuana that really distinguished us. And where other countries were looking at what we did and saying, maybe we don't want to do it the way they did in the U.S. with their highly capitalistic approach to this, but still maybe we should. So we've been a world leader on that issue. And then secondly, the fact that Colorado and Washington legalized in 2012 before it was legal anywhere else in the world that reverberated internationally. It forced the United States State Department to change its position at the United Nations. It forced the White House to say to other countries, we're no longer going to interfere if you want to move towards legalizing marijuana. It meant that Uruguay had more space to move forward. It opened the door for Canada to do it a couple of years ago. Now, Mexico has just approved legalizing marijuana. So the U.S., our two fellow North American countries, Canada and Mexico, are both going for national legalization, right? Basically, the second and third countries in the world after Uruguay. But we have been, we led that with Colorado and Washington and the other states. And now we're leading in terms of really thinking through the tricky issues. What do you do, not just about issues about racial and economic equity, 
What do you do about allowing marijuana to be consumed openly or about allowing marijuana lounges, which is in the law, or about what about when the cops smell marijuana? How are you going to handle the marijuana and driving issue? How are you going to handle the taxation issue? What are you going to have about people giving marijuana to younger people? Like, you know, but I think the provision's got something says, yeah, you can't sell it to kids or give it to kids. But if you're 20 and the kid's 17, no, wait a second. That's a different situation, right? So they really, there's a level of thoughtfulness and innovation going on in the American states, which other countries are looking at. So Mm. when it comes to marijuana, and by the way, also on psychedelics, the United States is very much the global leader, even as we continue to be a disaster when it comes to the issues of mass incarceration in the drug war. I want to come back to the psychedelic issue and, and what comes next, but because I don't know the answer, in all of these states and in New York, is, is it legal for 21 and above or 18 and above? Yeah, unfortunately, it's all 21 and above. You so know? is and this, you know, yeah, this is an issue that I've talked about before. We have, yeah. we have to use the alcohol. I, I think it's a gross injustice because marijuana use is greater among younger people than anybody else. So it's, it's bullshit. It's hypocrisy. But basically, because alcohol is 21, the notion of legalizing marijuana, even though it makes logical sense from a social and scientific mm-hmm. perspective, mm-hmm. you know, you still have that. How can we make it younger than Buddha? Yeah, well, this is it's an issue that I've covered a bit on this show about how do you determine what is adulthood? So you can go to Afghanistan, join the Marine Corps and die, but you can't come home and have a beer or now smoke legal weed, right? If you're, exactly. if you're 19 years old. So I think it, that the country's got to face this, this, uh, this clarification of what it means to be an adult in America, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I tell you, you know, you see for, for a while when I would look at the arguments that our opponents use, for a long time, they used the stepping stone hypothesis. You smoke right. weed and you're going to go on to other drugs. When in point of fact, it was probably the case that it was the prohibition of marijuana, which led to any stepping stone that if you were using marijuana, it pushed you into black market where heroin and cocaine were, were more common. It lumped marijuana with these other illicit drugs rather than with the legal ones. Right. So once that gateway theory kind of ran out of steam, they started talking about the adolescent brain, marijuana in the adolescent brain. And, you know, it's obviously not good to be smoking weed 24-7 and waking and baking when you're a teenager, right? And But the research basically shows that it's only going to affect your brain if you're doing that over a sustained period of time as a teenager and continue doing it as an adult, right? Otherwise, you don't see it. We now see the same argument, by the way, gateway theory and adolescent brain stuff being used vis-a-vis vaping. And I think it's basically comparably bogus on that issue as well. But, you know, the anti-vaping activists who are basically looking at, you know, this this quote unquote epidemic of adolescent vaping say, well, here, let's dust off the old anti-marijuana arguments and apply it here. And I think it's, you know, to some very good extent, no more legitimate than it was with marijuana. So can we can we go a bit deeper on that? Because you've, again, been a leader in helping the country understand this. What's your take on vaping? I'm a parent, right? I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and I'm already scared to death my kid's going to find a jewel on the side of the road or somebody's going to give it to him on the school bus. Can you give us the science and the truth around vaping from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, here's the, I mean, first of all, we don't know everything about vaping because it's only been around for about 10 years and because the devices keep, you know, getting, you know, changing and evolving, et cetera, right? So we don't know, but we have a huge amount of evidence based upon looking at biomarkers, looking at what happens on lungs. I mean, there's a lot of medical scientific research into these things. Now, if you look at a place which is less kind of driven to fanaticism about these issues, which is the United Kingdom, 
they're, they're equivalent to our top health agencies, Public Health England and the, the Royal College of Physicians. They've concluded that e-cigarettes are probably in the range of 95% less dangerous than cigarettes, 95% less dangerous. And they've also made very clear, right, which is if you're a long-term smoker and you can't seem to quit, Switching to e-cigarettes will dramatically reduce the harms to your health. It dramatically minimizes the external threats to people around you, right? And there's lots of evidence that appears to be more effective at helping people quit than things like the patches and the gums and the pills and all these other sorts of things. And if you combine switching to vaping with some counseling or support groups, even more effective. Right. So we know that's the evidence. Even the United States Center for Disease Control, the FDA, the others, they all acknowledge that if you smoke, switching to, to, to vaping is going to be a very significant advantage in terms of your health. Right. Now, people kind of got that mostly until a few years ago. And then when vaping became enormously popular among young people, especially when Juul came, because there was a phase five, 10 years ago when adolescents were doing these uh, open tank systems and the big fumes and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And that kind of you know, ran out of the fat and fashion that faded. Juul comes along, becomes enormously appealing among adolescents. The company foolishly promotes these kind of sexy ads and gets blamed for marketing. But quite frankly, I think there's a good chance that even if Juul had never done any marketing like that way, the simple fact that they had created a product which came closer to mimicking the pleasurable aspects of a cigarette and looked like a little computer thumb drive and all this stuff, it might have just taken off even if they had never mm -hmm. done that advertising stuff. Now, what happens? In this situation, kids are vaping, not a great idea, but the likely harms to their health really do not appear to be all that significant. And if you compare, for example, what are the effects of, on, on an adolescent's health of them eating junk food versus vaping, well, it looks pretty clear that junk food is more harmful to your health, your brain, and all that sort of stuff than is vaping. And then they're talking about, oh, 25, 30% of all the adolescents are vaping. Well, most of them weren't vaping daily. And then it turns out that rates of smoking among adolescents drop more dramatically than ever before, probably because kids who would have smoked are now vaping. And then it turns out that very few kids who vape are going on to start smoking unless they were already playing around with smoking in the first place. So when you then pull out the academics, leading academics who are viciously against smoking and big tobacco, and they do the studies, and they basically come to the conclusion that even if you assume that there's going to continue to be some substantial number of adolescents who vape, but that if current smokers and 13% of smokers, you know, 35 million, 40 million Americans still smoke cigarettes, that if a substantial portion of them can quit by switching to e-cigarettes or products like that, it would be a net savings of millions, if not tens of millions of years of lives. So that's what's going on. Now, let me so, just finish this before you go, jump in. On ahead. the public opinion... Yeah. It turns out a majority of Americans now believe that vaping is as or more dangerous than smoking, even though the science shows that diametrically to be false. Also, a majority of Americans and even a majority of physicians believe that nicotine causes cancer. 
but nicotine doesn't cause cancer. Nicotine's the drug that hooks you, but nicotine's are not, not a very harmful drug, basically, and may even have some beneficial aspects to it, right? So there's this massive misunderstanding about what's really going on, this demonization, this stigmatization, these bans spreading around the country. And I basically think that here we are, legalizing marijuana, moving forward legalization of psychedelics, rolling back the war on drugs, trying to decrease stigmatization against people with addiction. And here we have, oh my God, the new war on tobacco and nicotine. And 20 years from now, we're going to be doing another podcast interview and talk <laughs> about the war on drugs. And it's going to be all about tobacco and nicotine and vaping. Well, we will have whatever conversation we need to have. Thank you for laying all that out. But let me, let me press down on one thing. Is it really a framing problem here, Ethan? I mean, if we say vaping is harm reduction, right? Or it's better that you're, you're, yes. you know, you're saying it's 95% better than smoking, but it's not better than breathing fresh air in the mountains, right? right. And, and is it a matter of just educating people and separating those two? It feels almost like an argument about methadone, right? Like methadone is better than heroin, but it's not better than doing nothing, right? Or just exactly. going for a walk in the woods or doing some yoga. So is it a matter, you're great at kind of breaking that apart. Does it need to just be reframed a bit here? You're not well, saying that you, you're not saying it. that my, you're not saying my five-year-old should run around smoking a jewel. Of you're just saying if, if my kid's going to smoke when he's 18, jewel is better than a, than, than a Marlboro light. That, that's I mean, quite frankly, I, you know, when I was getting, in, I mean, I've been following this issue for many years, but when yeah. I stopped running Drug Policy Alliance, I got invited to speak about links between illegal drug policy and the tobacco vaping policy and about the war on drugs and what was happening here. And I remember asking some of the leading figures that very question, what, how would you feel if your teenager was vaping and vaping regularly? And they looked me right in the eye and they said, Ethan, you want to know something? It would pretty be, be pretty low on my list of concerns. I'd be much more concerned about what they're doing around alcohol. But that's a parenting choice, right? I think the, the thing that we need here, and, and maybe we're finally at a point now, especially with the pandemic, where science can guide decision-making, right? And not emotion or politics or corporate agendas. And if someone can say to me, hey, here's what you, like, I'm sure someone will do this. Like the likelihood of my, my kid getting hit by a bus versus dying from Juul. Yes, obviously, but I don't want either one happening. So you can educate me yes. as a parent and I, I can mean, make good oh, decisions and we totally. can trust policymakers, right? I think that's where you've been really effective in, in trusting policymakers. You know, Reagan scaring the shit out of all of us is going to be very different than Kamala Harris talking about the science. And if we can well, be at a point finally- the yeah. Here's the paradox to this issue, okay? Yeah. Which, which is basically- um, Look, we know that oftentimes the entire war on drugs was typically justified as one great big child protection act. If right. you look at what was the opposition to legalizing medical marijuana, protect the kids, even though there was no evidence that it protected the kids, right? Kids had the best access to marijuana of anybody in society for the last 50, 60 years, right? When the opposition to legalizing marijuana more broadly, the opposition to decriminalize, got to protect the kids. I remember uh, the former governor of, of, of New Jersey, Christy Whitman, why can't we legalize needle exchange programs to reduce AIDS? We got to protect the kids. Some of the opposition to methadone or to naloxone to prevent overdose, got to protect the kids. So this notion we got to protect the kids no matter what, and we don't give a damn about how many older people die or spread disease or get locked up. I mean, that's typically been the frame that we get, that harm yeah. reduction needs to be opposed by some pretense of protecting the kids. So that's the first thing to understand, that when you have a very strong push on harm reduction, those who want to oppose it say, but what about the kids? Even, they have, even though they have no evidence that the harm reduction approaches for adults will put kids at greater risk. Then there's the second point. This is very much an issue of class. 
right? These efforts to ban vaping have typically been, and when I say vaping, sometimes we're just talking about, 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 about e-cigarettes that are not tobacco flavored. Sometimes it's all e-cigarettes, right? You know, it's about class. When you see San Francisco leading this effort, who are these? These are middle, upper middle class, white, liberal parents, by and large, right, who see their adolescents beginning to vape. Now, for these white middle class parents, they don't know anybody who smokes cigarettes or who vapes, or at least they don't think they know. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. the people who do the, the little jobs in their house and do all this and who work for them, they may smoke or they may vape, but they don't do it in front of the elite, you know, parents. So you have these parents, white liberal parents freaking out, we got to protect our kids. Meanwhile, 13% of the country is still smoking. 10 million people or so are vaping. There are millions of people who have successfully quit smoking by switching from smoking to vaping, right? But these people are oftentimes white, middle, and lower middle class. They're oftentimes Trump voters, or they may be disproportionately LGBT or mentally ill, or now growing to some extent African-American, right? But the fact that this is much more an issue of the lower white, middle, yeah. lower white working class means it's out of their thing. And so for me, Paul, it was so galling was some of my best allies on marijuana reform, on harm reduction, drug policy reform, ending incarceration, my liberal democratic political allies, they're the ones leading the charge to ban, to institute right. new criminalizations. Right. And yeah. if you want a historical precedent, it's sort of like during, during go back to the early part of the 20th century, the progressive movement was doing all these wonderful things about labor safety and ending child labor and, and health safety and, and, and drug safety. But they also pushed together with the women's suffrage movement for banning alcohol and alcohol prohibition. So I think progressives by and large get it mostly yep. right but sometimes they can mimic the same behavior of the climate change denialists and all those others. Well, I, 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 that's why I think this is such a uniquely independent issue, right? It should be beyond partisanship. I think there's been a lot of um, co-opting and cannibalizing of these. Not, nothing works more effectively in moving public opinion than scaring the shit about people's kids, right? We saw that with the pandemic. Right now, we're saying like anytime if, if, if coronavirus had impacted kids, we'd be in a very different place right now. And we are in a very different place right now with regard to schools and other components because people were trying to protect the kids. And that's a natural approach. But something that you laid out that I think is very important for us to pull apart in the years to come is kind of the overlap around smoking, uh, class, uh, voting patterns, race, even like, like who smokes? I got people in my family who smoke. My working class white family, they're people who work, uh, you know, hourly wages, they're less educated, they were inclined to vote for Trump. You know, I got a good, a good family friend who, who smokes two packs a day. I don't know if anybody knows anybody who smokes. They're out there. They still exist, right? And, and, and you know, if you've been in prison, if you've been in the military, if you've been, uh, you know, working at docks, places like that, where those people tend to smoke more, more too. I mean, I've still got a pack of cigarettes Right over there. I like smoking. Occasionally, I will pull out a cigarette. I know it's bad for me, but I come from a time and a place and a socioeconomic demographic where that's more likely. And I think unpacking yeah. that is, is very well, important. Well, Let me Paul, ask you. You want to know a funny thing about the politics of this thing. So this whole vape, right before the pandemic, when, you know, before, if you look at the headlines, before we got the pandemic in early 2020, the epidemic of the night of 2019 was about vaping. Right. That was right. all the TV stories, the headlines, stuff like that. And it was and this was not just, it was mostly Democrats leading, but Republicans on board. Mitt Romney is a huge advocate of banning this stuff. And you know what happens one day? 
Melania Trump comes home. Yep. And she's concerned because her son, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, 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 Baron. 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 Either yep. he or his buddies, teenagers, had yep. been vaping. Yep. And she goes, you know, hey, Big Donald, you know, we got to do something to here. And so he calls the thing. And he says, look, we got to ban this stuff, right? And, and the FDA, goes, yeah, yeah, we got to ban it. And then what happened was people started to mobilize. And you had guys working like in Grover Norquist, you know, uh, yeah. tax reform shop, which is kind of libertarian, cut that. But these guys got mobilized because they cared about this issue. And they started showing Trump's political folks that there were hundreds of thousands of people in key swing states, independent voters and Trump leading voters who were vapors, including people who are not just both smoking and vaping, but who would use vaping to stop smoking. And as they said, this is not a lifestyle issue for us. This is a life or death issue for us. So they showed that data. And then the vapors themselves mobilized. They organized a demonstration, you know, outside the White House and to their yep. good fortune, Trump happened to fly over them. You right, know, right, I mean, and right. so Trump actually changed his position. He actually held a meal. I mean, I think Trump is a goddamn pathological, sociopathic, fundamentally dishonest nightmare. But there was a there's actually a, a meeting he held at the White House with all the parties. And he actually acted almost Obama-like in listening to people's opinions and because he'd actually yeah. didn't know what to do on the yeah. issue, right? Yeah. And so, so I mean, the, and I actually think that Democrats would do a lot better by simply, if Biden would simply say, you know what, when it comes to the issue of vaping and e-cigarettes, we're going to follow the science and we're going to respect people's rights. He might actually be able to help pick up some votes of people because the Republicans are a bit stuck on this. I, 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 I was I, I'm glad you, you mentioned it earlier, this this moment where I thought Trump was going to do it. Trump on the campaign. He was down. This would have been the perfect time for him to say, I'm all for legalization. Right. And I was surprised Biden didn't, right, for the same reason, because of the political opportunity, especially mm -hmm. in swing states and especially with voters. But let me let's look forward, Ethan, mm -hmm. um, to, to one question I want to ask, because this is the question that comes up from all the devil's advocates. Should we legalize everything? Should everything be legalized? And if so, yes. If not, why not? You know, should crack be legal? Should everything? This is the question that you get from a lot of folks, right? When when this happened, my mother-in-law, you know, I was happy. We did a toast. I said, hey, it's finally legal in New York. My, my mother and father-in-law are there. They're like, this is a good thing. My mother-in-law, who's almost 80 years old, says, great, now everybody's going to be high. So like there's a very, there's a generational divide here. And the argument that always comes up is, well, should we just legalize everything? You're the expert. Yeah. Should we? Yeah. So my my answer to that basically is no. Okay. Um, and but to say, first of all, I think that the the debate about legalizing everything is a valuable one for two reasons. The first one is it forces us to appreciate how many of the harms associated with illegal drugs are not about the drugs themselves, but in fact about the policies. You know, that when you're, so look, fentanyl is used in American hospitals for people post-surgery, but now that it's being imported illegally from China and Mexico and people are getting it, you know, in an unregulated way, people, we have more overdose fatalities than we've ever had in American history or global history, right? Um, drugs being unregulated is not a good thing. Drug business being controlled by gangs and gangsters and with violence, locking up hundreds of thousands of people, arresting a million half Americans each year. These are all negative consequences of the war on drugs, right? Prohibition pushes drugs to be more compact and concentrated and all of this. So it may, so that when people advocate for legalization, part of that is about saying, 
to understand how much of the harms are about the prohibition, not the drug itself. Mm. The second reason to advocate for legalization is it forces us to really think, what are we afraid of? I mean, on some level, the fundamental divide between those for and against are those who worry that basically Americans are to drugs the way, you know, monkeys locked up in a cage are to cocaine, right? Monkeys in the wild have no interest in cocaine. Monkeys locked up in a cage with nothing else to do will just keep taking it until they maybe they kill themselves, right? You know, so are American and American society more like the monkeys in the wild or the monkeys in the cage? (laughs) My sense is that the large majority of people who would get addicted to drugs if they were legal, they're already addicted to something else that's either legal or illegal right now so that the risks are there, but they're not that great, right? So when I, I, I think about legalization, it really depends how you do it. When we talk about legalizing marijuana, you know, we're talking about it more or less like alcohol. When it comes to legalizing psychedelics, at least in the early years, we're basically talking about having doctors and therapists being allowed to use it as part of a therapeutic thing, allowing it to be used in religious contexts, and not locking people up anymore if they want to grow their own mushrooms and, you know, and and, Mm -hmm. and do that sort of thing, but not selling it over the counter in supermarkets or even regulated stores, maybe down the road. When we talk about heroin, we're really talking at least initially about what they're doing in Europe and Canada, which is that if you want to quit heroin, but you can't, and you've tried methadone and buprenorphine, which are sort of like nicotine patches and gums are to cigarettes, well, allow people to go to a clinic, get legal heroin there. They can't take it home with them. They have to use it in place. And those programs have shown remarkably successful results because when you stabilize on heroin, when you're not buying it on the street, when you're getting the same dose every mm-hmm. day, you're not getting so high anymore. You're just basically keeping from getting sick. So it depends how we do it. If you ask me, what's my biggest fear about full legalization? You know, for me, the answer is to look at what the big consumer good companies have done with food. You now have food companies producing junk foods where they're doing brain science and they're playing with products and just tinkering to get the right combination of sugar, fat, salt. So it's zinc. You know, think about Krispy Kreme donuts. But I mean, think about Krispy Kreme donuts in a, in a zillion different types yeah, of products. Yeah, they're they're now they're now three dimensional uh, Cool Ranch Doritos. I mean, like these things scream at me, and they're in my car, and I look at them, and I'm like. This is a, a sick fuck who designed these things, right? I know. Well, you know it's, like, it's the Chris Rock routine. Like, you find, found out what's the secret ingredient in Krispy Kreme donuts? Crack cocaine. Right, 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 you know? right, right. So, 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 but basically, I look at what, what the food companies have done, and you just look at, you know, the dramatic increase in obesity, right? Yep. You know, in the United States and many other countries with really serious impact on on people's you know morbidity and mortality how long they live health you know vast consequences for our society probably you know emerging as one of the greatest addiction problems we have in america in terms of long-term health and cost to the economy i see them that big companies beginning to play around with you know integrating the prozacs and the mdmas and this and that and getting things Mm -hmm. into that i worry about what big, sophisticated business working on new developments in brain science could do. And I don't like the look of it. Um, so let so- me let me jump in there and ask you, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll move toward, you know, wrapping this up in a way that I think looks toward the future. What's the next fight? You've been leading on psychedelics. And let's assume that we are winning. We've got the enemy on the run. Cannabis is going to come. You know, we're, we're going to move forward with the federal strategy. What's the next frontier in drug yeah. reform? that you care about and that other Americans should care about. And I hope will be maybe an independent 
issue, not a partisan issue. Maybe that is something that we can look to for common ground in the years ahead. But what's the next fight, Ethan? Yeah, really. And really, I would distinguish here between the one in terms of changing public opinion, the cultural mindset, and the one about the legislative angle, right? So let's assume that the marijuana thing, especially now with New York out there, you know, let's assume that's got to move forward. But, you know, that's not what you're asking me about. Psychedelics is really moving forward. FDA is going to approve some of these drugs plus MDMA, which is not really a psychedelic for medical context. So that's moving forward. And we see a ballot initiative that happened in Oregon on, on legalizing or decriminalizing psychedelics. So that's going to move forward. But when we're talking about the issues around heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, things like that, which is what most of the people who are locked up are locked up for and most of the overdose fatalities are about, Really, at the legislative level, it has to, the next step is really about ending the criminalization of possession of small amounts for your own use. That's what some European countries and a few Latin American countries have done. It's what Oregon had two ballot initiatives last year, one that decriminalized psychedelics specifically, the other one that decriminalized the possession of any drug in small amounts and allocated money for treatment. Right. So I know in New York, my colleagues, the Drug Policy Alliance, okay, marijuana legalization done. The bill's ready to start moving the legislature around decriminalization. What happened in Oregon last year, that effort was also led by Drug Policy Alliance with local allies. It's about basically making the end of criminalization of all drug possession, which would eliminate most of the drug arrests in the country while still you know, criminalizing the dealers. At the cultural level and public opinion level, the basic framework of harm reduction needs to be embraced ever more broadly. People get harm reduction when it means put on your seatbelt, right? People get harm reduction when it means wear a helmet when you're riding your bicycle or a motorcycle, right, or playing football. They understand these are risky or potentially dangerous right. activities, but let's reduce. They get it about wearing a condom with respect to sex, right? People have begun, we have a majority understanding the role of needle exchange. They have, we have a majority of people understanding why you want to make naloxone widely available. In every case, you can say, oh, but if naloxone available, more people will use these drugs so they won't worry about dying. Or, if, you know, But, you know, mostly that argument's bullshit. And to the extent it isn't bullshit, the benefits of saving lives. Well, that same harm reduction approach has to be embraced in a much broader way that allow our children, allow ourselves to take certain risks and death. It's in the nature of growing up. It's the nature of adolescence. It's in the nature of, of especially young men and all of this. But <laughs> make sure you're providing a safety net. Make sure you're providing education. Make sure you're providing both a public health perspective and an interpersonal compassionate perspective so that people who get in trouble by doing dumb, risky, dangerous things don't get hurt as bad as they might otherwise. And we got to apply that to the other illegal drugs. We got to apply it in this issue of nicotine and tobacco. We have to apply it more generally in our society. You're the voice to help us through it, man. And, and you are exactly the right guy to have on at this moment. Um, I am exceptionally grateful for all you've done. You've broken down many issues. You're a returning champion. So I have to ask you uh, a, a reoccurring question that we only ask re returning champions. Now, these are two highly addictive, very potent uh, fabrics of our, of our culture. And I've got to ask you, there is no middle ground here. You have to choose one or the other. Ethan Nadelman, pancakes or waffles? You had to choose one. Waffles. Why? You know, the best pancakes are better than the best waffles, 
but by and large, you're you're more you're more likely to get a good waffle than a good pancake. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I look forward to having a pancake or a waffle uh, or some cannabis with you at some point soon. We do. We still do presentation of the gifts. We're not in person like we were in the car club last time. So I'm going to send you some. We have new independent Americans gear. We got hats. We got shirts. We got coffee mugs. I'm going to send them your way. I'm still giving out peeps. You chose last time, but I'm going to give you. Where did it go? I had it. Oh, here it is. Um, You're going to get something special. Uh, this was in my kids' basket. A lot of our listeners have been sending me all different kinds of peeps. There are jalapeno peeps. There are more oh. kinds of peeps than there are versions of cannabis right now, if you look out oh, there. Good. But this is Fruit Loops flavored peeps. And I think it's been a wild time. So I'm going to send you some Fruit Loops Fruit peeps. Fruit Loops peeps, my God. I'm Paul. still going to send you a bottle of Uncle Nearest whiskey. They continue to be a supporter of this show. Um, and, and only for you. And because I'm in New York and I guess it's legal now. I don't know how I can get it to you, but I got a really nice pre-rolled hybrid that you know, uh, I don't know um, if I can, I can't send it to you. Maybe I can't probably can't put it in the mail. So maybe yeah, I'll just know, have to get a rain check just, and we can just, just have some Uber delivery or something like that. Take <laughs> care of it, you know, and technically it's illegal in the federal mails, but when you're sending it from one part of New York to another, but listen, Ed, you know, I just wanted to say, I am going to be starting my own podcast all about drugs sometime this summer. So, you know, I hope your listeners will keep an eye out for that, but we'll be covering the whole spectrum of issues. And uh, it's great to see you again. It really is. You, and you are, you have made this country a better place. And I think it's really, really important because, you know, the early days, I can't imagine how hard it was for you and how many things were stigmatized and demonized. And you fought the good fight for a long, long time, Ethan. And congratulations on the victories that you helped, you know, make so many of them possible. But also, thank you. It's made this country a very, very much better place. It's making our world a better place. And it's going to make for a hell of a summer in New York and all across this country, my friend. Yeah, yeah. So, well, thank Paul, you for all your leadership. That, that, that praise is especially meaningful coming from you because I am such a fan of all the work that you've done around veterans and much else. So I look forward to our next uh, returning uh, uh, thing. And uh, thank you. And, and good luck. To be continued. Day. Smoke them if you got them. The great and powerful Ethan Nadelman. Stay vigilant, my friend. Okay, man. Take care. Thank you. Well, there you have it. After that, I think we all have some reading to do or maybe go have a drink or a smoke. This is not the end of the conversation. It's the beginning. And I hope that conversation brought you some insight and maybe some hope. Because hope is the oxygen of democracy. And we got to keep it burning. Whether you're all in on cannabis, you're passionately against it, or you're still on the fence. Especially now, when we're in a time that's feeling more hopeful I hope this show brought you a hit of that because our democracy continues to need oxygen more and more by the day. And it's finally more contagious than the virus. We can all be like Ethan Nadelman and all our recent guests from Jake Wood to Wes Moore to Evan McMillan and others. We can be super spreaders of hope. And if you haven't heard those recent shows, please go back and check them out. And check out our newest podcast from Righteous Media. You heard about it in our last episode. Everybody and their mother has a podcast. You heard from Rick Sorkin and his mom, Sharon, last episode. And their new show premiered this week. Episode one is live now, wherever you got this podcast. And everywhere you get your podcasts, go check out Everybody and Their Mother Has a Podcast. And spread that hope wherever you can. 
Hope is the air we need, and it's in the air. Along with that sweet and stanky smell that if you didn't know before, you will soon. We got to keep breathing, especially if we don't want to be like Gonzaga, or if we just want to take it all in. So take a deep breath. And keep breathing so we can all stay frosty, spread the hope, and finish this pandemic strong. Keep breathing in that oxygen and that hope and encourage others to do the same. Especially all the first responders and volunteers helping get out the vaccine and to the helpers and leaders like Ethan. We can all be helpers and we can win this thing if we hang in there, if we stay vigilant and be the helpers. The helpers that Mr. Rogers told us about. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. And there are leaders spreading hope everywhere faster than the stupid. Leaders setting the example from all kinds of backgrounds. Leaders who are showing that everyone can be a helper. This week, the U.S. set a new vaccine record with 4 million doses administered in one day. That's almost triple the number of just a few weeks ago. And we can't let up now. Have the courage. If you haven't gotten the shot, get the shot. And be like Dolly Parton and the Dalai Lama and my mom and four presidents and Sammy Hagar and Ron DeSantis and my wife. And now even Sarah Palin, the former Alaska governor, Sarah Palin, has called on all Americans to wear masks. She did it while also disclosing that she and some of her family members recently tested positive for COVID-19. So even Sarah Palin gets it now. I never thought I'd say this, but be like Sarah Palin. And be like me. Get the shot. I got my second shot of the Pfizer vaccine on Monday, and it had me feeling good. I mean, real good. And it has lots of Americans feeling good. Good in my heart. Good like we're eating that rainbow stew. Eating rainbow stew in a silver spoon underneath that sky of blue. We'll all be drinking that free bubble up and eating that rainbow stew. Getting the shot feels like eating rainbow stew. Yeah, I was sore, and I was definitely tired the next day. But listen to me, and listen to Dolly Parton and so many others. Don't be a chicken squat. Get the shot. I got the shot, and I also did something else. I took my five-year-old son. It was the day after Easter, and he had off from school, and it was a gorgeous day. But I wanted him to see what it was like. I wanted him to see the helpers. I wanted him to see the National Guardsmen who were helping with traffic. I wanted him to see the volunteers and the nurses and the people cleaning the chairs. I wanted him to see everybody. I wanted him to see what it was like to be a helper. I also wanted him to see what it was like to get the shot because the likelihood is high that he'll have an opportunity to get it later this year. And I don't want him to be afraid. I want him to see that I didn't drop dead and I'm still here and I made it out. I wanted him to see that the shot is a way to lead, a way to help, and a way to do the right thing. And it's an easy way that every one of us can be a helper. So my thanks to everybody who helped me get the shot and helped so many others get the shot. Thanks to the people who were so nice to my kid and gave him more chocolate when he got there the day after Easter. But all of you are making things better. All of you are serving that rainbow stew. And I'm grateful to all of you. 
And thank you also to Ethan Nadelman. Look for his podcast coming soon. He is a true trailblazer, and he is the best kind of independent American. Independent Americans are the future, and Ethan is yet another example. He's an example of a helper. And thank you to more helpers, especially on the Righteous Media team, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, and also some other folks that are helping behind the scenes, Paula Hernandez, Maurice Sita, and Chinton Panchel. They're working hard to make this work and everything we do at Righteous possible, and my thanks to them. And if you like this episode, go to the Apple Podcast Store and give us five stars. You can give us five blunts. You can give us five puffs, whatever you got to do. But be sure to subscribe for free and share and visit us on social media and check out independentamericans.us. There are links to all our social there and to our merch. You've heard about it. It's hot. It's on fire. Go to independentamericans.us and check out our very badass camping mug, our hats, and now T-shirts in 16 colors. We have more colors of T-shirts than Seth Rogen has ashtrays. So check out independentamericans.us for that merch. You can also see video of this conversation with Ethan and over 100 episodes of leaders from Susan Rice to Mick Foley to Mike Shinoda. You can find them at independentamericans.us or on the Righteous Media YouTube page, which I hope you will subscribe to if you haven't already. We're going to continue to add light to contrast all the heat of the other political shows. And every episode is going to continue to bring the Righteous Media five eyes, independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And so if you're among the 40% of Americans who are independent, this is your pod. If you're a Republican or a Democrat and you're not a diehard partisan, this is your pod. If you're a concerned American who cares about the future of your country, this is your pod. All are welcome. And I invite you to join us and be a part of the solution and a part of this community. You can also join us for exclusive access and events by becoming a member of the Independent Americans Patreon community. Join us just five bucks and you get access to events, our guests, merch discounts and exclusive content. Coming up, we'll have another happy hour. Our monthly Zoom happy hour is coming on Friday, April 16th. We'll have a special guest or guests. We'll have some prizes. I may talk about cannabis. I can't give out cannabis, but now that the law has changed, maybe I can apply for a cannabis club card or whatever. But join us April 16th. It's for Patreon members only. And you can join us and become a member of the Vigilant, the Very Vigilant, or the Most Vigilant. I hope to see you there. And to those of you who have already joined, thank you for your support. And thanks especially to some of our biggest fans. Thanks to Rob Whitman. He's a teacher, a coach, an athletic director, and a principal from Atlanta and now Flint, Michigan. He posted a picture of himself in one of the old Angry American shirts, and he asked me, is this considered vintage now? Yeah, man, it is. But I thank you for that, and I thank you for all your support and all that you and all the other teachers and principals and coaches are doing in Atlanta, in Michigan, and everywhere across the country. My thanks to Rob Whitman, and thanks to our old friends Delfino and Nelly. If you've been listening for a long time, you know about Delfino and Nelly. They run Aldine Tree Services and Stump Grinding in Houston, Texas. They post videos, they rock our t-shirts, they give great feedback, and they give me advice including this clip that they posted with some excellent advice. We're wearing our Angry America's Mercers made by Oscar Mike. They wash and wear well. Plus, they're super comfortable and look great. As subscribers to your YouTube channel, we're angry your YouTube channel doesn't offer full episodes to feature full introduction and conclusion to each podcast interview. Having all 90 plus podcasts posted will be a big bonus to the channel. 
Great feedback from Delfino and Nelly. I love it. I will work on that. We will try to post complete shows on YouTube. It's another way we want to bring this content to people for free. And I love you guys. If you're in Houston, Texas, check out Aldean Tree Services and Stump Grinding. And maybe down the line, we'll have to get a podcast created just for Delfino and Nelly. You can join them, of course, if you go to independentamericans.us or if you go to our Patreon page. And my thanks, of course, and always to my wife and my two boys, The Easter Bunny came to our house and actually came to the whole damn yard and to the neighbor's house, but it was an awesome and fun time for the boys. There's nothing better than Easter with two little boys. And even better, maybe the best Easter gift of all, two little boys moved in down the road from us. Two little boys exactly the same age as my two little boys. And it was pretty emotional to meet them and it was emotional for my boys to be so excited to have somebody to play with who's their own age there haven't been too many kids around the last year and i was inspired to see these four little kids making friends and having fun and being outside and loving life and eating up that rainbow stew today i was a part of something called brave day the folks at today i'm brave do a great event every year called Brave Day where they celebrate bravery and they celebrate leaders. Big shout out to Lindsey Stein and David Angelo and everybody at Today I'm Brave. They asked me a pretty straightforward question. Who inspires me to be brave? And I told them, it's my kids. It's those two little boys and it's my wife. They keep the fire. They help me cook and eat rainbow stew every single day. Well, I'll be drinking that free bubble up and eating that rainbow stew. Things are getting better out there. And we got to take a minute to take a gulp, to breathe it in, to soak it in. But we ain't done yet. We got to keep that fire burning longer, even when it's windy, and maybe especially when it's sunny. We got to finish this thing. Don't be Gonzaga. Our Independence Day is coming. Our VC Day is coming. Our victory over the coronavirus day is coming. That will be our day, America's day, your day. A day when we can all declare our independence from the virus. But we got to stay vigilant. America's on the comeback, but we got to keep the progress going and don't let up. And we can keep this movement growing week by week by week if we stay vigilant. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And with hope in our hearts, it's the path to better days. Pass that hope. Pass it. Puff, puff, pass, pass. Pass the hope. And know you're not alone. In your vigilance, we're all vigilant. This is a smoking circle that continues to grow. We're all in this together. From Ethan Nadelman, to Ben Harper, to Sarah Palin, to the Easter Bunny, to Merle Haggard, to you. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay frosty. Enjoy that rainbow stew. Happy 420. And stay vigilant, America. Silver spoon underneath the sky blue. We'll all be drinking free bubble up and eating that rainbow stew.